Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Tree of Life by Paul Ernst It was cold. God, it was cold. Outside the cabin, a blanket of February snow showed leaden white under the heavy mid-afternoon clouds. A keening wind growled through the bare-limbed trees. It rattled the dry boughs like the fingers of skeletons, and stole between the slats of the crude window to twitch at the shroud of the thing beneath. It was from that sheeted stark figure on the long bench that the greatest cold seemed to emanate. Nothing can be colder than a corpse. Nothing. A corpse seems to radiate a deathly chill that numbs the heart of whoever is near it. Because of the shrouded body, more than because of the actual temperature, I was chilled to the bone in spite of my inches of heavy clothing. I got to my feet and walked up and down the one room of the cabin, averting my eyes from the figure on the bench. Then, in an effort to conquer fear with familiarity, I crossed the room and lifted the shroud from the hatchet face beneath. An old woman, looking far older than her years, because of her lifetime of toil and disappointments. The hair was scant and yellow-gray, the eyes open and staring, were like grey stones. The nose seemed to have projected even farther in death than in life. It jutted out like the point of a wedge. There was nothing lovely in this pilgrim, set out for the farther shore. There was nothing reposeful here. It was Mrs. Wylam, wife of Ab Wylam, our nearest farm neighbour. The old couple had been swindled out of their modest Ohio farm five years before. In their old age, they had been forced to come to Upper Michigan, barehanded, to wrest a living from the unfamiliar soil. And now, this. That noon, my father and I had hitched up for the twelve-mile drive over laborious roads to town. This was before the day of teeming autos and cement highways. In front of the Wylam cabin, my father had pulled up the horses and stopped. Standing before us was Ab, a spare, gnarled man in whom age had curdled like milk in a thunderstorm. Just a minute, he called, coming to the side of the wagon. I need help. Anything we can do? My father began amiably. He stopped at the look in Ab's eyes. My old woman's just died, he said. The words were as perfunctory as though he had just announced that his hogs had cholera. But his eyes spoke for him. They were dazed, hollowed out with sense of loss. Somebody had ought to stay with her while I go to town for the undertaker, continued Ab. She couldn't never bide being alone. I'd hate to leave her alone now. My father turned to me doubtfully, speculatively. Think you can keep her company, son? My look must have showed how repulsive I found the idea of a lonely vigil in the squalid cabin with the dead woman, for he hastened on. Never mind. I'll do it. You're pretty young. Now the youth of youth is a sore point. His reminding me of my sixteen years was sufficient to make me insist on staying there, 
while he drove Ab on into town. So here I was, shivering in the mean little hut beside the dead Mrs. Wylam, blue with a cold that did not come entirely from the winter wind, but that emanated straight from the shrouded thing on the bench, under the window. I replaced the sheet over the hawk features, and sat down before the fireplace. That psychic cold that struck through jacket and mackinaw, knee-high boots and heavy socks. I huddled closer to the fire, resolutely turning my eyes to the leaping flames. I did not want to look toward the dead woman. I wondered if the body, in life, housed a deathless spirit, as most people claim it does. I wondered where this woman's spirit was. I fancied I knew what other spirit it was with at the moment. Just before the land deal that had cheated the Wylams out of their little farm, Ab's daughter had died. The daughter was an unfortunate creature, born blind and dull-witted and ugly. Her whole life had been filled by Mrs. Wylam, and the old lady, to hear Ab tell it, had concentrated all her frustrated hopes and ambitions in a ferocious maternal flame of love for her unfortunate child. The two had talked without words, Ab had once said. The girl's soul, he said, was twisted around the mother's like a creeper around a tree. Now was the daughter rejoined in death by the only person that had ever meant anything to her, the only light that had shone in her warped, blind world, her mother? Was the daughter's spirit hovering somewhere near, come to escort the spirit of her beloved parent? I thought of these things as I huddled miserably over a fire that could not warm me, and prayed the time would not be too long in passing, till my father and Ab got back with the undertaker. I turned to the wood-box, which was full to overflowing, and dumped a big armful of split branches into the fire. This awful cold! The fire roared higher as I fed it more wood. In an effort to counteract that chilling cold, I built a blaze that threatened the safety of the cabin. The first keen edge of my formless terror gradually wore off, as all keen edges do in time. The psychic chill was less numbing, or possibly it was more numbing. I don't know. Perhaps my fear was now so great that my nerves refused to twitch to its stimulus any more. At any rate, calm of a sort came over me, and with this unnatural stunned calm there came a relief from the coldness. In spite of the open window, covered only by the few meagre slats, in spite of the low temperature outside, I began to feel suffocated. I was dressed to be comfortable at zero. It must have been nearly sixty degrees now in the low, small room. I took off my mackinaw and loosened my collar. Then, as my feet felt the heat, my boots began to bother me. They were new and stiff as only new knee-high boots can be. I took them off too, and padded about in my heavy socks. I opened the door for a foot or so, and propped it with a piece of firewood. Trying to make my mind a blank, I sat down, a good way from the scorching fire. Another two hours would be needed before the trip to town and back could be concluded. Two hours, two centuries. I sat there, 
keeping my eyes on the partly open door so that I would not see the way the draughts twitched like ghostly fingers at the edge of the shroud. There was a faint scratching on the bare-swept step outside, a small, tapered head in which were set two beady eyes, was poked inquisitively around the edge of the door. A wood rat, and an astonishingly bold one, driven past fear, no doubt, by the attraction of the warmth and the smell of food in the cupboard. Cautiously, with many a spasmodic retreat, it came into the cabin. It kept its hard little eyes wearily on me. I stayed motionless, glad of any distraction. After perhaps five minutes of manoeuvring, it reached the centre of the room and crouched, staring impudently up at me. I reached slowly down beside me for one of my boots. Slowly. The wood rat jerked toward the door, but stopped as my descending hand was stayed. It came back, and now my fingers were round the boot top. My hand snapped back and up. The rat raced for the door, but a foot away from it, the flung boot chanced to catch it squarely. It kicked a little, and lay still, with a fleck of red dabbling its spiky, repulsive whiskers. I started up to throw the dead rat out of the cabin, when another scratching sound on the step outside came to my ears. It was a second wood rat, and this one was either entirely fearless or lost a caution in its discovery of its fellow's fate. Without even a glance at me, it streaked from the door to the furry body lying beside my boot. It sniffed around the dead rat with inquisitive nose, and stared at it with beady eyes. Then, almost before I could follow its movements, it had streaked for the door again, and was gone. Almost at once it was back again and in its mouth was a green leaf about the size and shape of an oak leaf. A green leaf. Green, in the middle of February, in a region where winter is unrelenting and iron-bound. My face must have been a mask of stupidity as I stared at that leaf. Where in the name of all that was miraculous could the rodent have found it? There were no green trees in the countryside at that time of year, I knew there were none, yet here was this leaf. The rat was less quick this time, less bold. It crept slowly toward the stiffening body of its mate. As it advanced, it kept its glittering little eyes directed not toward me, curiously enough, but toward the corpse. There followed a most astounding spectacle— the rat began to scurry aimlessly around the room, as though something were chasing it. Carefully holding the amazing leaf clear of the floor, it dodged wildly from one wall to the other, always keeping its eyes fixed on thin air in front of it. I was as completely disregarded as though I had not been there. Toward the improvised beer, the rat scurried, only to double spasmodically away from it and run under my very chair. Had the thing gone mad? I began to fumble for my other boot, fear of a bite overcoming my curiosity to see the outcome of this inexplicable play. The rat approached its dead mate again, keeping its eyes on a spot on the wall over the body, 
as if there was something there that was invisible to my eyes. With a quick move, it placed the green leaf squarely on the little stark body, and behold, a miracle. The rat that was dead was no longer dead. Under my very gaze it quivered and came to life. The legs jerked once or twice, the body twitched. The creature rose, limping and stiff, and followed its mate out the door. My mind whirled in a blind chaos. That impossible green leaf, its contact with the dead rat, the resurrection of the little pest. As had everyone else who lived in that part of the state, I had heard tales of a fabulous tree of life. Somewhere in the region there was said to be a tree that could raise the dead at a mere touch. The myth had been handed down to the old-timers by the Indians. My father had heard the yarn from his father, and had told it to me when I was a youngster and begged for a fairy story. It was a myth. Of course it was a myth. There could be no truth in such a thing. But that wood rat had surely been dead, and now it was alive. I stared at the leaf still lying on the floor, like an oak leaf it was, but of a softer texture and a lighter green. A leaf from the tree? My gaze went, fascinated, from the leaf to the body under the window. A dead rat had come to life. Why could not a dead human being? Both were flesh. Both were made of the same stuff. And here, to my hand, was this incredible green leaf. I left my chair and picked it up. It seemed to curl about my fingers with a life of its own. It was soft as the softest silk, and warm, like no other leaf I'd ever touched. The feel of it went through me like wine. I seemed to expand, to grow larger than my own self. Clutching the leaf, I started toward the corpse. As I went, the numbing chill that had paralyzed me before laid hold of me again, and suddenly— as though the touch of the leaf had given my eyes new power, I thought I saw something wavering protectively over the dead body. I say, thought, because by now it was early dusk, and the misty shape I seemed to see was so intermingled with the gathering shadows that I could not be sure. Also, when I blinked my eyes to test their veracity, the vision disappeared. I lifted up the shroud and started to touch the leaf to the dead woman's face. Icy fingers seemed to catch at my wrist. My hand was torn away. Will! It was like a shower of ice-cold water, that whip-like crack of my name sounding behind me. I gasped with the suddenness of it, combined as it was with the sheer terror that had crept through me at the fancied touch of those unseen fingers. My hand opened convulsively. As though caught by some invisible force, the leaf whirled out the window and was gone. "'Has anything happened to upset you?' asked my father, putting his hand anxiously on my shoulder. "'No,' I mumbled. "'No, nothing at all has happened.' "'I thought I saw something blow out of the window,' he persisted. I made no answer.' Ab, meanwhile, was taking a last look at the woman who had helped and cared for him for so long. 
She's happier now, I reckon, he muttered. She's with Patty, probably, with our poor, blind daughter. I never told them what had happened in that cabin. A kid of sixteen doesn't tell such things. He's too sure he'll be laughed at. It's only now, when I am well along in years, that I dare to relate the affair and speculate about it. Was the rat really dead? Possibly not. I am in no position to prove it. Did I merely imagine that wavering thing by the corpse and the touch of those cold fingers? Perhaps. One's imagination is apt to work overtime during such a vigil. Could the spirit of the dead daughter have really been in that room? And did it first chase the rat and then clutch at my wrist in an effort to keep the mother from being resurrected? It sounds unbelievable. The only fact that I can reiterate is that the leaf in the midst of winter was green. I saw it, held it in my hand. What would have happened had I touched it to the corpse? I don't know, of course, but I think... I think...